You know what it could be? Past life experience intruding on present time. Could be race memory stored in the collective unconscious. I wouldn't rule out clairvoyance or telepathic contact either. As a friend, I have to tell you, you're finally going around the bend on this ghost business. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And it's movie time again. Yes. We've watched another movie. Yes. Now, the movie we watched tonight. I've been waiting for this one. I really had somewhere in the back of my mind, well, I'll save that for an October. <laughs> Make that a Halloween movie. But it just never really fit. And I realized it because this is not a Halloween movie. It's, Certainly for me, this is a summer blockbuster movie. There's a lot of blocks that get busted up in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're a month early compared to when it was released in 1984. But it's the beginning of May. It's a good way to get into summer blockbuster a season. I've been so excited. I've been waiting <laughs> for us to do this film. because I didn't realize that. It's one of those movies that... I kind of knew once we started the podcast would land somewhere, in part because I knew it first as a cultural stone. It was this solid object in the cultural stream that would continue to have ripples, but I never saw it form. I only knew of its shadow, and so I'm like... It got, had to have some form of impact that we're going to wind up talking about at some point. That's been an interesting part of doing this podcast with you, is is gaining a better understanding of the things where I remember them being the new thing and having their initial huge impact. And I'm getting gaining a better understanding of you growing up in an environment in which this was always part of the culture. Oh, yeah. I mean, for for, for those of you who start up our podcast without checking the title, A... Thank you for that blind excitement just to listen to the IMMP and not checking. That's very nice of you. <laughs> but also, we're talking about Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters 1984, directed by Ivan Reitman, written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. And you can definitely feel that, but but yeah, we were, we were mentioning there, you, you know of this as the big thing coming out. For me, putting this in perspective, the movie came out, the sequel had come out. And the animated TV show ended, like, about a year before I was born. By the time I ever interacted with Ghostbusters as a franchise, it was a franchise with multiple pieces to it. It was a thing that had already had all of its spin-offs and things. I knew of Ghostbusters more from people reminiscing about Ecto Cooler than I did actually seeing the movie at first. And... This is the first thing I ever saw Bill Murray in. Ah. This was my introduction to him as an actor and his style overall. I had, uh, this is the first, now, this was the first time I'd sat down to see Ghostbusters since seeing Stripes. So you can imagine how not having any context for it, this thing was just a monolith of a product that was just casting a shadow all the way through pop culture in the 90s when I knew it. That's interesting, and I really don't have any connection or recollection to most of that ancillary stuff. The merchandise, even the, the, the cartoon show. This came out when I was in college. And so none of that really made an impact on me. But the movie did. This is one of those early 80, 80s movies where... I went back to the theater to see this. It's got to be five or six times or more during that first summer when it was released. For one thing, there were some like $1 movie theaters where I grew up, and that, that made it easy after it, been, it had been out for a few months. But I, I wanted to study the story of, the, of this, the structure of it. It is so well put together with some exceptions and some flaws that I that, – that, I really have problems with, and I, I will probably wind up talking about in a, in a little bit. But 
the engineering of this movie just fascinated me, in addition to the story and the characters and the fact that it was just fun to experience. This movie made an impression on me just simply as itself, as the artifact that it is. Oh, I, I absolutely understand that and can absolutely get it because in that same way how I'm describing for me, it was this already existing object. People I knew who interacted with it splintered off into a got interested in it or maybe they were the older kids who had been a little more exposed to it when it was an active property. And so it was a thing they used to like, but they were getting past and moving into these new things they were interested in. Or it was that old movie that I don't bother with ah. to some kids. And, I'm, and I was here like, when I finally saw it, I was like, ooh, I like this. I like bits of it. Why are the bits of it I like not the parts anyone else focuses on? Huh. Now that's maybe maybe I just like movies. Maybe I like <laughs> the way the movie is made. Huh, let's take a look at other movies. And that's part of where I got to enjoy this because I was this was one of those films that became that oh, I'm a, I'm a film and I I like film analysis. I didn't expect that. A lot of my contemporaries weren't getting into that at the time. But I liked how to break down a movie. <laughs> And that was fun. And so that's, where, that's where I'm like, yay, we do a podcast now. So you wound up in a similar place with this movie to the one that I was in in 1984 and 85. Absolutely. Cool. Just no one else to talk with it on that <laughs> at the time. So, so what is your impression of this then as a movie, independent of all the other stuff, now that you have uh, watched it again tonight? I gotta say... This is a very thin plot some, in some ways. It, there, there's, there's a lot of bits that are covered by montage to get from A to B that I want there to be more body to. But that's me getting very critique. I think it's a finely, fine, well-constructed film, but I can almost see some of the, the pieces a little bit more now than I used to. And there's bits where I'm like, Oh, wow, a lot more of how I thought about this was propped by knowing there was more than just this movie. On its own, it's flat in portions I expected there to be more in. Interesting, interesting. I, I see this as a very well-constructed story, mm -hmm. a very sharply put-together set of acts. And yeah, there are some things that are skipped over and it seems to me that those are the things that are just fine to be skipped over because the way they're done in montage. I mean, there's the, the, the first one, or the main one, I would say, is the rise of the Ghostbusters, going from they're running out of money, getting, then finally getting their first client, and then the big montage of they're celebrities and there are all these ghosts for them to deal with. Oh, yeah. When, I, when I'm saying it's thin, I'm meaning this is origami. They fold pieces to get point A to point B, and it's very beautiful the way they do it, but it still falls apart on certain bits because it's thin paper in those forms. But I think it's great, and I think it's well made on that. So, Oh, that is that is very interesting. I, I see it as, as pretty robust, and hmm. they do a good job of setting up what they need to set up and and paying off what deserves to be paid off and i um that's interesting i never thought of it as a thin plot well assembled i always thought of it as a a robust plot well executed with a few annoying blemishes okay yeah i, I can definitely see that I don't want me to. I don't want it to sound like I'm coming at it with a hot take of negativity. Oh, I understand. that I'm not intending there. But yeah, how do you approach this? Even just the story itself is definitely it's that rise and that that's that fall and then that climax of the this final battle. It, it has a very clear structure in that, and I guess I just I'm I'm also very technical fiddly person on things and i want it to be a little bit more that at times 
in part because I know it as a brand with all these other things, there's a lot of stuff that bleeds into how I first interacted with the Ghostbusters that come from the second film and from the ancillary media stuff that got filtered in when people were discussing it because, oh yeah, you know the baseline, so I can talk about the secondary stuff already. And that means that hit me first, and I expect that in the first that isn't there, uh-huh. which means that some of the... The, the delightfully casual way when you look at it that they talk about their tech, that they gather together the iconic visual elements that make the crew, the way that just kind of happens and comes together and is approached with this, oh yeah, that's the thing, you know, <laughs> the thing. It rings different for me because of that, but I can appreciate how well they approach it by just not bothering and it's there in a brilliant way. I've got this big happy block in my notes from this uh, recent rewatch of this movie. It just says jargon, jargon. This is so full of jargon. They just did a great job with the jargon, and it's one of those things that makes this real and believable within its own context. And they've got two different kinds of jargon they get to use. There's the semi-supernatural physics of that—that that is Egon Spengler's expertise. And all their you know, particle physics and all this stuff. And then they've got the folklore and supernatural history jargon, where they're throwing out the names of all these books and these and, and, and apparently, you know, these are standard reference works in the in the supernatural investigation world that they can just refer to and look things up in and they can find references to these ancient Hittite gods. I could look for the name Zul in the usual literature. Spates catalog. Tobin's spirit guide. Yeah. Tell you what. And I love that combination of the folklore and the science aspect of what they do and the way that they just casually throw around this jargon. The scene where they're talking with the client in the building and they are both just bouncing back and forth like other explanations of what she's describing. And they go through so much that I know if you read it on a page, it's like, this is so densely worded and none of it makes sense as individual sentences. But it's purely about being able to see the flow of the actors saying these and yes-anding each other back and forth of the, how they phrase these. I love that scene. It's like they took a year's worth of the Art Bell radio show <laughs> and put it into a few lines of dialogue. It's great. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you want the, the best tech scene, I still think that's the elevator. You know, it's just occurred to me we really haven't had a completely successful test of this equipment. I blame myself. So do I. Well, no sense worrying about it now. Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. Yep. Let's get ready. Switch me on. They've already shown them arriving with these big backpacks. They go through this entire thing and they don't explain it for like an entire establishing scene later. But this one little elevator bit explains what's going on here. That's the sort of thing where I love how they do that. They do a lot of grounding the things in the world by having a reason for someone to say what's going on, but it's always secondary. The thing always happens and then someone says it, which means you never get a, as you know, Bob, kind of explain it before it happens moment. You always get a, you get a lot of a something like, like put down the trap. And then they, you put that in the thing is the only moment I can think of where the, the saying happens before the doing. Because mm-hmm. so many times the doing happens than the saying in a, they do a thing. What just happened? Well, this thing. Okay. So that's a that. Okay, I can <laughs> go with this. They, they explain their jargon in that way, which is so smooth compared to the way a lot of other films do that. It is. And I think the two different kinds of jargon they have relate to the story in that. I always see this as two parallel stories that then interlock. Because you've got the story of this team of guys, these three and later four guys. Oh, and in case it's not obvious, because we're talking about a movie, spoilers for the 1984 movie Ghostbusters. I just, we just, we just did the thing I was describing before, where people assume you've seen the film so they can talk <laughs> about all the ancillary stuff immediately. 
we've got these guys who, at the same time that they make their technological and their scientific breakthrough, get the data they need to take the next step in, in their scientific field, they lose their academic positions, and that drives them to the story of this successful climb to be uh, you know, the innovators and the, the masters of this new field of endeavor. Mm -hmm. And that's where, generally speaking, where the science and tech jargon comes in. The other story that's happening is the rise of supernatural phenomenon in the New York City area, and it turns out it's because it's time for the return of Gozer the Gozerian, the Destructor. And the, the Tobin spirit guide and the folklore research and all of that is what anchors that part of the story, makes each of these potentially independent stories seem very real, gives them a lot of heft. And I, I like the fact that they, they don't shortchange either part of the story so that they are on equal footing when they come together. And it's the Ghostbusters who have built this technology who need to deal with this weird event in history. Oh, yeah. We have the characters for either side of that. And then those two stories get in some way stitched together by the, the charismatic frontman being played by Bill Murray here, whose narrative story is the one I find the most frustrating in some ways, because he it takes a very skilled actor of Bill Murray there to play a guy who I cannot like but want to follow the, the narrative around for that long. Venkman is such an aggravating guy because he's just charismatic, but the little bit unpleasant in some ways all the time, but in a driving force kind of way. He's the one character who, if you look at it the right way, hasn't earned any of this. At the beginning, there's the, the, the dean of their university explaining why their grant is being terminated and they're being fired and kicked out. And all these details, and it culminates with him telling Venkman, you are a poor scientist. He's not wrong. We yeah. see his horrible methods, his falsification of data, his lack of work ethic, versus Egon Spengler, played by Harold Ramis, seems very dedicated to his field of research and is gathering data. And ultimately, his data is proven correct because they were able to build technology based on it. He's earned this. Dan Aykroyd's character, Ray Stance, at very least his, his enthusiasm and his deep knowledge of the folklore is what helps make this a success. He's earned this. What has Venkman done except be, I guess, a motivator and charm his way through things without actually getting any work done? I don't know. In some ways, it's hit. The other two are excited to have the opportunity to do this, but it almost seems like the Ghostbusters would have wound up stuck in a cycle of R&D that might not have happened in the same way if it wasn't for a charismatic front man to kind of push the advertisement and the talking with the client to get the money and milk him for a little bit more money than we thought. There's some of that in there. He's he's the one that they're feeding the how much should this cost to because he's the one who can say it to the customer with such confidence the customer will pay. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, in some ways, it's uh, you, know, you don't have Apple computer without Wozniak and Jobs. And Venkman is sort of the more charming Steve Jobs of this uh, startup venture. Absolutely. And that's also why, honestly, one of, my, one of my favorite Ghostbusters is Ernie Hudson is Winston. Because if we've got the spiritual and the technological and the front man, this is the guy walking in who is just the citizen. And he's coming in, but he's the grounding force immediately when things start to get more real. He's the one who says, if someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. He's the common sense of the group. Right. Who shows yes. up when they're starting to spiral out of control because of because they don't have that in any of the other three at times. That's a great point. He he really anchors them in the, the world and the society where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, it's no accident that he's the one at the end who gets to shout, I love this town. Exactly. He's and he's the one who seems to have the appreciation of we just saved the town. Yeah, that's what we did. 
I love this town and I'm willing to save it, is the mentality the Ghostbusters needed to finish this fight to deal with the fact that things went bad and then they still had to fight a giant marshmallow man. <laughs> I don't think they would have otherwise, with the three as established in the beginning in the same way. I think ultimately they they would have taken on that responsibility, whether they would have succeeded, I don't know. That's why I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah you've got a point there. They needed the right kind of motivation. This was no longer just a job and no longer just a business. Mm-hmm. Winston's the one who, who starts talking about end times references, looking at everything going on, which is what they then later used to convince the government to allow them to actually do their final fight <laughs> in the building. So, Yeah, their persuasion of the mayor of New York to, uh, to be behind them in this is pretty good. That is an excellent moment as well. That's one I see quoted a lot, too. It also gives them the opportunity to lay it on the line. I think Venkman, you know, not that he had a lot of choice, but he was absolutely uh, uh, straightforward when he said, you know, if we're wrong... We're wrong. We go to jail. We'll do it happily. You know, we'll, we'll do it happily. We'll enjoy it. But if we're right, well, then you know, you've saved New York. You've saved them. It, it really was all on the line for them. Not that, you know, if, if they didn't succeed, then, um, you know, going to jail is probably the least of anybody's worries. Oh, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of the thing. Like, if this if we don't succeed and this is real, yeah, that's not an issue anymore. <laughs> Everything's gone then. Oh, boy. And it really is. We've talked about New York now a little bit. New York was so important to this movie. It was such a New York movie. Oh, goodness. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, the New York turned into the setting of a fable, the way some movies are. And it wasn't the New York is a dirty, horrible, dangerous place, the way some movies enjoyed portraying it, especially in the 70s. This was a... A cleaned up but real and believable version of New York. And and I liked that, especially since I you know, lived in New York at the time. And I walked my, my first job in New York after college, a few years after this came out, I walked past the New York Public Library every day. And, oh, story about that? Yes. Across, at that time, late uh, 80s, across from the main branch of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue was... The Cabbage Patch Kids store. Oh. Which not only was the Cabbage Patch Kids store, but it also played some kind of Cabbage Patch Kids related music out on the sidewalk. Okay. And I could never help but think, this is scarier than anything Ghostbusters portrayed in the basement of the library. (laughs) Maybe there's an underground connection and the same spiritual malevolence that was portrayed in Ghostbusters is what has given rise to this Cabbage Patch store on oh. the opposite corner. <laughs> oh, goodness. I can imagine that. I'm just now imagining the Ghostbusters fighting off, you know, hundreds of plastic-headed fabric dolls. You know, some of those Cabbage Patch kids, they just looked like smaller versions of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I'm not going to be able to get that image <laughs> out of my head now. But it it does portray a New York that is busy, that is in some ways busy enough to not be, it is terrified of the ghosts, but it's also frustrated with with the ghosts getting in their way. And it's a New York that is full of old buildings built by weirdos. (laughs) And that's the best way I can describe it. That's very much something that just watching history stuff, I have that connection to New York because of your origins, but I'm not New York in that sense. I never grew up there enough to make that part of my identity completely, but I've got enough of a knowledge of it that when I then looked up history stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, that narrative of the building built with weird things in its walls because of the strangeness of the architect that was given the opportunity to to plan this thing. That's the sort of thing that would happen in New York yeah, of any city. That just kind of fits with the place. It really does. I mean, it's not uh, it, it's not that out of the question. It was one of those things that's just a heightened version. I think there are places in New York where you could find some really weird buildings. Whether they're like the tallest building on Central Park West, probably not. But they're, 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 they are do there. They, do they have a core of stuff designed to work as a radio antenna for ghosts? <laughs> Maybe not. And talk about the, the more fairy tale aspects of this i don't understand how a working classical musician let alone her neighbor who has worked as an accountant for i think he said four years 
How they are affording these apartments on Central Park West, I don't know, especially in the 80s. I do not know her, but from but he, I actually believed on that. Yeah. His party was full of clients, and he talked about their finances, and he was talking about a whole lot of little deduction things. I am absolutely certain he found a way to game it to get that place oh, okay, in maybe. his four years. Maybe. I believed him being there way more than her. <laughs> But that's the sort of little things you think about when you watch this movie a lot more. <laughs> yes. I, I, this, this watching, this time, I realized the weirdness of the fact that suggesting that if you think of J. Edgar Hoover, then that's the thing in your mind and that will become the form, would in theory think, make you think of J. Edgar Hoover. In theory, that should have been the thing chosen for the form because it was the suggestion before the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man came into the conversation. Maybe it's maybe syntax grammar came to the rescue. He he explicitly put a condition around that. You know, if you think of J. Edgar Hoover, I'm not thinking of J. Edgar Hoover, but if you think of J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover will come and destroy us. Okay, maybe I, I, I'm reaching to make. Oh, it absolutely. Work. <laughs> that's the thing. Like this is a movie you can pick apart thousand ways like that, but that's not to its detriment that's because it is so snappy it's just constant <laughs> and there's one thing i mentioned i alluded to this earlier there's one thing that did not sit well with me at the, when the first time i saw this every time i watch this i hope it'll somehow come across better for me and it never quite does mm -hmm. and that is so central to the movie and that is the don't cross the streams detail. Yeah. That was, for something that to me is so well constructed and things are subtly telegraphed and paid off later and the setup and it's so well put together in that way. And in that first real case that they have when for the first time Egon is, is telling them, you know, don't cross the streams and here's what'll happen if you do. It was just so obvious that like it to, to me the movie comes to a halt at that point. And it's, it's almost like, it's almost like nodding to you. This will be the ending. Yeah. We are now going to announce to you the thing that will be important at the end of the movie. Thank you for your attention. You may now proceed with the story. If he had given two other warnings about their tech at the same time, like like like, uh, do not get the pack wet. Do not cross the streams. Do not this. Yeah. You would have at least camouflaged the ending in two other potentials, and it would have worked, and it would have fit his neurotic, overly concerned about these different things that could go wrong and being willing to tell you aspect. But they, they, they lay that one so clearly. I'm with you. That's a, that would have been a great way to do it. There, this is a very powerful, untested technology. There are probably a lot of things to worry about. Let us know about more of them, and then you can pick the one that you need to, the rule you need to violate at the end. Yeah. In some ways, in some ways, that's the, that's the move, that's where the movie feels like it's skipping things for me, is where it, it is, I guess the exact same thing you're pointing out here, it's those little moments where it gets me. They never actually deal with the library ghost from what we see. I yeah. assume they went back, but they never say. Yeah. Or the library ghost escaped across the street, mm -hmm. inhabited Cabbage Patch dolls. <laughs> they show a lot of the Ghostbusters running around with traps and different magazine titles, but I kind of wanted to see the moment of them sitting and reading a bunch of books and tinkering with new tech a little bit more during that montage to show the progression better it's the same like we're gonna we're gonna not put in two pieces when we can put in one piece to get from a to b and that's where i get that feeling sometimes okay that's where it starts to thin out for you mm -hmm. i get that it's a drum it's a drum solo where there's not a lot of changes other than a very good paradiddle constantly <laughs> And, you know, we've talked about the four um, principal actors who were, were the Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of other uh, performances that are worth mentioning, though. I think Annie Potts is terrific in this as Janine. Oh, she, she, she steals scenes constantly from the main. 
in some ways, she's kind of the representative of New York City within their little organization. She's such a New York character. And of course, Sigourney Weaver as oh. Dana Barrett. Oh my goodness. Very good performance. I think probably a challenging performance because she's got to hold her own in scenes with much bigger and broader characters, much more um, actors who are much more demanding of attention. And she absolutely does hold her own in those. And she has to play a lot of different things between being Dana Barrett to being gatekeeper, gatekeeper of Gozer. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, and she does a great job. And to do this, a lot of people saw this five years after Alien. And said, wow, this is the same actress who plays Ripley in Alien? This is somebody with range. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sigourney Weaver is a very talented actress. She just... Even when she is in this movie playing Possessed by Zool... It's, 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 there's, there, just standing there is able to give a performance of body language to say something's different. And I'm not just talking like, just walking from spot to spot to say lines. There is a movement difference, which is a, you are thinking how to act this fully. And that is amazing. You're not just saying things differently or changing your intonation. You're changing your presence in a room. Way more than I've seen some actors yeah, doing anything else. You are inhabiting a different character now. Mm-hmm. And and Rick Moranis as the uh, the the neighbor, the kind of the nebbishy accountant who becomes the keymaster of Gozer. He was playing a broad Rick Moranis character. Yeah, the 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 foil for all the the jokes. A a drop more would have been way too much, but. He works in this context. I think they, they use that character well. I think Rick Moranis portrays the character well. And that's a character who gets so much better and more interesting, but also more broadly comic when he's possessed by the otherworldly demon and becomes a different character. In some ways, his bit talking with the horse is one of the, one of the <laughs> weirdest, interesting ghost scenes in the entire movie. I always forget that exists, and then it comes in when I watch the film, and I'm like, oh yeah, this bit. Wait, what? I am Vince. Vince Clortho, Keymaster of Gozer. Volga Sildrar, Lord of the Sebulia. Are you the gatekeeper? Hey, he pulls the wagon. I make the deals. You want to ride? Wait for the sign, and all prisoners will be released. I kind of wanted to cut away to Ghost Horse when everything went down. And that leads me to another question that has occurred to me in the last few times I've watched this movie. Um, are the Ghostbusters maybe the bad guys? That's a good question. I mean, um, they're, yes, ghosts are in this universe. Ghosts are a problem. And people need ghosts dealt with. They're catching these ghosts and imprisoning them. Apparently, the plan was to, I guess, imprison them indefinitely or forever in some way in what seems like a small parallel pocket dimension containment system. That seems really cruel. Yeah. That seems like a horrible fate. There's a lot of writhing and screaming when they are hit with proton beams, and the traps seem very forceful and dangerous. You could build entire mythologies around this group of people being the ultimate evil. You know, watch out, because after you die, these creatures might come and trap you forever. Yeah, that's another thing. They never actually bothered to explain ghosts as being, are these the dead, or are these, like, some dimensional other thing? Like they they clear they very carefully sidestep that in order to kind of avoid some of the moral quandary of this. That's a good point. They are they they are ambiguous about that. I mean, Winston does uh, offer the idea that you know, this is the the reason why there are so many ghosts is that it's the dead rising from the grave and it's the end times. But that's never established. That was a possible explanation. The other one, yeah, could be that these are psychic remnants of people. They're not human souls they are whatever's left after a traumatic death or something who knows but yeah i guess they're not necessarily conscious spiritual entities (sighs) 
See, there's so many questions this poses. <laughs> but the fact this this movie doesn't get to ex- to to explore those. It gets to it explores the people, but it doesn't explore the setting in some ways. It it, it, just, it depicts New York, but it doesn't explore some of the ramifications of what it puts into that New York at times. And that's one of the things I like about this is that it does suggest a bigger world than we get to see. Oh, yeah. And that's always a good thing. There, uh, Anything that where I, I know that I'm seeing the edges of this world they've built, that's kind of disappointing. This is between both both the setting of New York City and the scientific, spiritual, supernatural world. They're bigger than we're getting to get than we are getting to see. And I like that. That's also, I think, part of the drive to make a sequel, to make a cartoon spin-off show, to make a tabletop RPG. I've got a copy of that downstairs somewhere. Oh, I've got to read that. Um because there's the world is big enough, people want to experience more of it. They don't want to leave it behind after the movie is over. And I get that. But too often, the directions people go in and creators go in when they, um, when they follow that, that drive and that impulse are disappointing. Because they start to exhaust what was there without adding more. In, in terms of just being able to present a bigger world... I think one of the best things for that, weirdly enough to call it this, is it's a cluttered world. There's a lot of stuff. There is not a lot of bare sets. The world is detailed and interesting, and that implies that there's a thing you could follow down each of those interesting aspects. When they reference a book, when they reference all these external sources, that implies story in that direction. Just their visual design. The the truck is covered, the Ecto-1 is covered in all of these other bits and greebles their their proton packs have all the flashing lights and buttons just the first time they even see a ghost they've got their pke meter with its little arms that that move up as they go the tech of this world the rooms of this world the the dense bookshelves in the bottom of the library that are old and dusty it all implies a world that is full of stuff which means that the moment you imply that there's a thing in a topic on this, you could keep following it because there's obviously stuff there. And that's kind of how I like the the visual design ties into that narrative design aspect. But it it's where this world feels dense enough with stuff going on and stuff you could do and things you could pick up that when it doesn't do anything with that, you're like, ah. And where all these other things were able to sort of fill out some of those items. And that's where I ran into some of those extra bits people tried to fill in more information about later first before seeing the movie. Because they, the cultural establishment was trying to pick through the rest of this properly cluttered world in that sense to begin with. And the way that that, that clutter works, uh, and I, that was a great description, I think that points out that this really is a very well-directed movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and very well designed. I think that Ivan Reitman is very uneven as a director, and he directed Stripes also. Oh, yeah. But I think this is by far his best directed movie, and the hallmark of the direction of this movie is that we can be in this cluttered world, and yet we always see and our attention is drawn to what we need to see and know and appreciate in this scene, not because it's done in some artificial way, just that it is shot, it's blocked, and it's designed in a way that draws us to what is important to the story. And that's where the story seems so strong to me, is that every little bit that we see and hear supports it. Oh, yeah. And it is just brilliantly made in terms of the fact that they stretch budget in so many interesting ways, but they do so in a way that actually adds to this. When they're saying, when I'm saying it's cluttered, that also means that they use the same prop in multiple places sometimes, <laughs> right. and you don't notice it because everyone moves around. Everyone is directed in a way that makes that part of the world, which means that the world is established, follow the characters in the narrative. It's not in the way. It is It is a visual representation of the place where this takes place, and that is what's so great about it. 
The one thing that I think does fall down in terms of design really isn't Reitman's fault or anybody else's fault, but it is the product placement. Yeah. This was uh, distributed by Columbia Pictures. Columbia Pictures was owned by the Coca-Cola company at the time. There are lots of cans of Coca-Cola just so they they practically gave them hero lighting of their own. It's like, now's the time for the Coca-Cola ad. Thank you for your attention. You can now resume the movie. I am absolutely amazed we do not see Slimer chug a can of (laughs) Coca-Cola in this film. And I have nothing against marketing and advertising. Hey, podcast listeners, if you want to tweet about us to any of the pl- people who promote and sponsor podcasts out there, please do. We're loving it. But I, I do think they get heavy handed in the movie with that yes. because they are. <laughs> that is the one piece of clutter that ever gets in the way of the shot. Right. It's the, like the cans on the table kind of thing. It's like, ah, dang it. Well, there's one other element to this movie that we haven't really talked about too much, but I think it is another thing that made an impact, and that is the music. Oh, you mean the thing that's been playing in my head the entire time (laughs) we've been recording? Well, there's a lot of stuff there. I'm not sure what's been playing in your head. I admit it's the main theme, because that's the thing I know best. The main theme, actually, that was the first piece of it I'd ever run into. So hearing that music? hearing that music. That was just like on people's playlists, actually more around Halloween, despite as we pointed out, it's not a very Halloween movie. It's very much a time and setting and such summary movie but it was one of those things that that horn synthesizer song is so iconic but there's so much other good music in this save the day is so good there's a lot of great songs and of course it was it was a big deal at the time to put enough songs in a movie that you could have a you could sell a um an album that was the songs, the pop songs used in the movie, not just the the score. And uh, I think this is one of the best examples of doing that right. A lot of great music in this. A lot of great music. This, <sighs> When this movie does do those montages and such, it knows how to keep that momentum via its music. It That music is... There's not really any music I would say that is somber or relaxed at times. Most of it is more upbeat, but it is upbeat in a, like, this is a story about a business trying to get off the ground kind of huzzah. Yeah, it is easy with all those pop songs to to lose sight of the fact that this really does have a pretty good score. Oh, yeah, the score, the score is where it gets dramatic and serious. The pop songs are always, always jumping, but the score is... Knows when to be ominous, knows when to be, I, I don't want to call it silly, I want to call it, like, stylistic? I, yeah. yeah, there are two principal themes. It was Elmer Bernstein wrote the uh, the score for this movie, and there are two principal themes. One of them is that, I always think of it as slightly goofy, slightly old-fashioned, kind of bouncing up and down, sort of. Yeah. And and they play that in a few different ways, that theme, at, at different times. To, to em- sometimes it can em- emphasize suspense, and other times it's you know these knuckleheads trying to get a business off the ground. And then there's the love theme, yes, which you see in some scenes with Dana and uh, and Peter Venkman. And I think that is a terrific. I mean, it's not melody for the ages, but it's a really good, solid, effective, and evocative love theme for uh, a movie score. Yeah, it's. <sighs> The fact that I actually have a harder time pulling out some of those theme things in my head. The pop songs, unfortunately, overwrite them for me. But I acknowledge they're there because I'm I'm there thinking this all works. And if that didn't fit so perfectly into that scene, it would have stood out enough for me to notice. The fact that it is so smoothly just part of this experience is actually a sign of how well it is because that means it knows how to set that tone and carry you through the bits it's there building upon what you're seeing by adding that audio component in there perfectly yeah there are some scores that work because they're in your face like most john williams scores and there are others that work because you don't necessarily notice them independent of the movie and yet they make it all so much richer Mm-hmm. It's there messing with something on the in the back of your mind, prepping it to take everything else in. I did find myself, and I think the last few uh, viewings of this, 
noticing more and more how uneven some of the visual effects are. Yeah. Some of the animation, especially when you're not caught up in following the plot because you've seen the movie a dozen times before, some of the animation used for visual effects doesn't necessarily hold up. And other aspects hold up extremely well. Some of the, you know, the, the cloud tank and lightning effects and things like that. The, the, the self-frying, I guess, I guess Zool produces microwave radiation. The self-frying <laughs> eggs scene is just still amazing prop work of just this shaking carton and the popping eggs. That's great. And, whoa. But the supernatural dogs, they, that animation doesn't necessarily yeah. hold up, but. Slimer is an impressive puppet with impressive stu- uh, movie effects to make it look right. He just doesn't show up as much, and he doesn't move as much as I'm used to everyone else like animating and depicting him moving. Everything else, he he zips around so much more energetically in like a high C commercial than he actually does in the movie. Weirdly yeah. enough, in a way that means that it twisted my initial response to him. And he sort of became like the Scooby-Doo of the cartoon version, didn't he? He became the mascot in the cartoon completely. They literally, like, have a tamed Slimer, I think. (sighs) But I do think the ghosts work because, for the most part, the ghosts, the ectoplasmic entities, whatever they are, there was a consistent visual style for them. And it's like, okay, in this universe, ghosts are real, and this is what they look like and how they move. That's cool. There was, like, one or two ghosts, like the taxi cab driver ghost— that didn't work for me because it was so different. Yeah. It was too physical versus these uh, translucent ethereal beings we see all the other ghosts as. That 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 moment feels like something that was in an earlier version that they didn't get to the FX department to be able to do the little squiggly purple lines and shade effect they were going to drop over this prop. Like, oh, it didn't make it into the final cut. Oh. Now, I suppose now that I think about it, what s- does some work to save that? is going back to that wonderful jargon. Mm-hmm. Because they do have these conversations where they're talking about all these different kinds of ghosts, and they'll throw out a very technical description of the kind of ghost somebody encountered in a way that implies there are lots of different kinds of ghosts, and here's the official designation of, of what you saw. And and again, that makes the world seem bigger. But the fact that we only saw one, maybe two examples of that kind of more physical ghost, it didn't work as well. Yeah. So I'm glad that you enjoyed this. I did. And I didn't know you had been been anticipating this, but of course we had to get there. I, 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 I was anticipating it because being able to look at this on its own was even hard in this to do, but it's... I guess we're getting into our final discussions here. I think so, yeah. yeah. Shall we make it official? Let's make it official, okay. It's a movie. Screen or no screen? Screen. <laughs> I had a feeling you were Screen gonna... on a regular basis. Yeah. Screen this every few years to just refresh yourself, because this is great. There's a lot of bits in this that I think could be... I see there's bits in how this movie is constructed, which are just good to be able to look at how you're narratively going to assess other things. Or how to write a different story as well. You want to do a story with jargon? Look at how Ghostbusters does jargon for a moment. You want to write a story about business trying to get stuff off the ground? Watch Ghostbusters. It actually does that pretty well in some weird ways. There's some aspects here which could be just useful in general. And it all works together in this quite well. Screen this more than once. Yeah, absolutely. It does hold up to multiple viewings. And you're right, there's a lot to learn from this for anybody who's interested in storytelling, you know, how to tell a story that's made of these discrete acts that are joined and assembled very deftly, both with transitions, with montages, with things that efficiently and get with satisfaction get you from one point to the next so you can get on with the story. There, There's a lot here and a lot to appreciate. So absolutely, I totally agree. Screen this movie. The next question becomes much more complicated for all the reasons that you introduced at the beginning of this episode. Absolutely. This this movie, as a movie, has gotten a revival, a reboot, and now has an, a pending, upcoming, other revival that ignores the reboot. So I guess rest in peace is off the table. <laughs> rest in peace Unless is off the table. Unless we think that that should be the answer. Well, let's, just, yeah, let's just also make a comment. You tell the Ghostbusters to rest in peace, and that doesn't stop them from doing anything. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. 
So yeah, Revive, Reboot, Rest in Peace. I'm going to say Revive, but I want to put a caveat on it. Can we revive the Ghostbusters without telling a they're down on their look story again? Oh, yes. The, because the sequel is just horrible. I'm, Absolutely terrible. I love portions of the sequel. I've not seen it anywhere near as much, but there's parts of it I really like. I just don't like the fact that it's another we're getting back on our feet story. The reboot was the story of them of a group getting together to make Ghostbusters again, and it looks like the next movie is a story of the Ghostbusters didn't continue. And a lot yeah. of the supplementary stuff is kind of the only place you can ever get anything where the Ghostbusters get to have a story where they're established. Exactly. It's it's like there are so many romance movies or movies that have a romantic component. And in order to make a sequel, they have to have, and this probably goes for Ghostbusters too, they have to have the romance fall apart. And these people hate each other now because they have to hate each other for us to tell a story in the second movie. No, that's not necessary. That's only necessary if you don't know how to tell any other stories. We get this triumph at the end of Ghostbusters, and yet at the beginning of the sequel, that all that's got to be completely ruined. Why? Why can't you tell a bigger, better story? I know that there's an issue with writers about the uh, about spectacle creep, where your next story has to be a a framework larger than the than the previous one in order to have the stakes feel important. You have to always worry about if you save it if you save a town you've got to save the city if you save the city you've got to save a country issue but in some ways i wish the ghostbusters had fallen into that trap because the story of the ghostbusters having gotten so big that they're franchised out there's ghostbusters trained in all the major cities across america they're looking at going international there's Less spectral activity than there was when there was the incoming force of Gozer, but there's still something going on somewhere. The teams are all out there. You've got the guys maybe drifting apart because Venkman is working on tech here, and they're they're writing books about how to differentiate the different types of spectral entities they're describing, and he's having to go do lessons in a different town to train the next batch over here because they're setting up an office here and they're doing these other big events and talking about this on national news and such. There's a lot here that still offers a lot of interesting story. Maybe everyone starts realizing, Oh wait, I'm having a response here. I'm having a response here. And they charted on a map and there's something being drawn across the United States with spectral acts. So many possibilities. I'm designing this in my head as I'm talking but why did that story never get told? There was so much push also for being able to promote the selling people proton packs and brown jumpsuits. Yeah. I'm sorry if there's only ever four Ghostbusters, you've got to wind up playing <laughs> one of those four Ghostbusters. You say that they franchised and everyone gets to be a Ghostbuster, but they're themselves being a Ghostbuster. And there's something to that for marketing. Maybe this is just the toy design part <laughs> yeah, of me I saying this that, but I'm like, this is, this is where I like Ghostbusters, and I literally, I literally was watching a monolith of marketing powerhouse crumble into the background when I first interacted with it. It was being swept away as an older property, replaced by things I love, like Pokemon and the like, but I looked at it and realized later, it didn't. It, it 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 did a lot of stuff, but it never actually like lit the engine to perpetuate itself in the way it could have, and it bugs me. <laughs> and I'm here, like literally, my hands are tensing up, frustrated with the fact that there's so much wasted potential that was never tapped into. There is so much they could have done, and I could even uh, accept a story in which, because there isn't an imminent you know, world-ending incursion from the supernatural, business is not great for the Ghostbusters as paranormal investigations and eliminations experts there just isn't the demand and therefore they have to make some decisions about what comes next maybe there's some conflict among the group related to these different aspects of what they do maybe ray stance is off researching and writing stance's guide to interdimensional incursions and 
Egon wants them to be putting their resources into developing this technology. And maybe there are people from defense contractors who are nosing around wanting to license their technology or buy them out. And there are so many possibilities that don't have to have them like ruined by lawsuits, especially when at the end of the first movie, they've saved New York and everybody loves them. Why, why totally undercut that? There's so many possible stories. They are a business that just had a massive proven event showing that this is a thing they could do. Where's the story about the Ghostbusters dealing with the Pepsi to their Coca-Cola? Yeah. A competing ghost service popping up and literally taking business away from them and the issues that arise there. There's all sorts of stuff. (laughs) Maybe the university that fired them wants them back, or maybe it wants some of them back, but not Venkman. I mean, so many possibilities. I, I, I... I want more Ghostbusters, but I want Ghostbusters that is different than the Ghostbusters we got, because the Ghostbusters we got is good. So do other Ghostbusters than just repeating the Ghostbusters we got. My response to that drive back in the 80s was to run a tabletop RPG. Oh, dang it, I gotta do that. I wasn't using the the uh, the Ghostbusters role-playing game rules I was using my homebrew. I, I in the early '80s, I created some homebrew rules. The I I called them adventure matinee, and the idea behind them was to recreate the sort of pacing and action you get in movies, and at least movies at that time. And those are the rules we used. And it was your uncle Jim and your aunt Sue and mom were uh, were the players. And the starting off point was. What if you had a setup like at the very beginning of Ghostbusters, but the paranormal investigators were not fired by their university? We're just following their university careers as they develop this science and technology and knowledge and are called upon as consultants more and more. And it was a very episodic game, but it was fun. And it was, I think, in retrospect especially, part of the drive there was wanting something better than anything, uh, something better than what was actually happening as a way to expand on what Ghostbusters gave us in terms of a setting. I feel that drive so much, I'm going to have to look at the RPG sets <laughs> I have and see what I might need to modify to make one of those work to do that myself, because absolutely, I think I think we're, c- we're calling for a revive, but with a bit of a fist-shaking, we'll fanfiction it in the meantime, in a, in a way I appreciate <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we are talking about a, you know, you could do a reboot. I think that the um, the reboot uh, about five years ago, I don't think it was bad. I think it was a fun movie. It yeah. had a lot to a lot going for it. I don't think it was a great movie, and by the very nature of being a reboot, it was not as groundbreaking as the original seemed. But because any reboot is going to suffer from that comparison i think i would rather see a revival of some kind and i'm interested to see what this new movie coming out soon will be like on that because i don't know what it's going to do with the brand but if if it does bring it back maybe that does lead into the things we want from it so yeah i can hope on that i'm cautiously optimistic about that yeah when, when, when we all finally get to see that and such we can chat about that online where they'd be able to find you on that dad you can find me online uh, at the website bymatthewporter.com, and you can also find me on Twitter as bymatthewporter, or on Twitch uh, as bymatthewporter. So yeah, to go to bymatthewporter.com, and you'll find links to uh, anything else that I'm up to. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as itemcrafting, on Twitch as itemcrafting live, and on most sites as itemcrafting in one form or another, including itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast at the website immproject.com, and that's where you will find links to all of our past episodes. You'll find a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from uh, from you there. Uh, what are your favorite uh, summer blockbusters, and what do you remember? We'd uh, You can also find our uh, contact page there where you can contact us. You can find us on Twitter as immpcast. And uh, you'll also find on our website, immproject.com, a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much to anybody who can support us there. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, All supporters on Patreon get access to additional audio content that we post there. 
And members of the IMMP Movie Club on Patreon Ooh. also get periodic shipments of DVDs. I don't promise that they will be good in an objective sense, but they will be interesting. And they will be things that we'll talk about on the, uh, on the podcast. So, um, so take a look at that. Uh-huh. And, uh, and of course, the best way to support us is to keep downloading and listening. We really appreciate that. Tell your friends about it. Uh, if you want to go on iTunes and give us uh, a nice rating or a review, that's also terrific. Uh, but just um, thanks for listening. And we'll be back in a few weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>